we'll, we'll get started. And here's the slide with being is flat. All right. So I am uh, today going to talk about a dimension of object-oriented ontology, which I refer to as flat ontology. And I think that this has a good deal of uh, significance uh, for uh, cultural studies, cultural theory in general. Uh, and can you hear me without the microphone? All right. So I'm not going to use the microphone. All right. So upon hearing the term object-oriented philosophy, and without reading any works by object-oriented philosophers, it is easy to get the impression that Hume proposes a naturalistic and scientific uh, philosophical outlook that seeks objectivity as opposed to subjectivity, and that excludes concerns pertaining to humans, the social, or the cultural. Yet this is not what Hume is up to. Object-oriented ontology is not a pursuit of the objective over and against the subjective, were this the case, object-oriented ontology would remain within the frame that it seeks to escape, this whole nature-culture binary that uh, determines our contemporary discourses. Rather, who seeks to escape the excessive focus on a single relation that haunts both philosophy and theory? As Harmon puts it in Prince of Networks, quote, object-oriented ontology places all human, non-human, natural, and artificial objects on the same footing. While the analytics and continentals both uh, still dither over how to bridge, ignore, deny, or explain away a single gap between humans and the world. Maybe we can get the word. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, end quote. So a moment later, Harmon goes on to remark that who unfolds not amidst the shifting fortunes of a bland human world quarrel, but in the company of all possible objects, pine trees, dogs, supersonic jets, living and dead kings, strawberries, grandmothers, propositions, and mathematical theorems." To this list, we could add presidents, nations, women's auxiliary groups, stars, couples, cane toads, porks, ice cream cones, and nearly anything else one might like. It will be noted that a number of the objects listed here are persons or social in nature. Consequently, the shift from subject-oriented philosophy or correlationism to object-oriented philosophy is not a shift from the subjective to the objective, but rather a shift from thinking all objects in relation to the human or a subject, to one, thinking humans as objects among other objects, and second, thinking forms of relation that do not involve humans. In the debate between the anti-realists who side with the primacy of the subject over the object and the naturalists who side with the object over the subject, object-oriented ontology adopts neither position. Instead, tracing a transversal line where both the human and the where both human and non-human actors are on equal ontological footing. It is this thesis, the thesis of all objects existing on equal footing, that I refer to as flat ontology. In this respect, object-oriented ontology should be contrasted with vertical ontologies. Vertical ontologies are always ontologies of depths and heights such that real being is held to exist only in the depths or in the heights. When a vertical ontology asserts the ontological primacy of depths, for example, it might claim that only subatomic particles are real. When a vertical ontology asserts the primacy of heights, it might treat all beings as issuing from God or the subject or language. By contrast, flat ontology is a superficial ontology, which is not to claim that it is without profundity. Rather, the superficial refers here to the surface, to the surface of the world, where all objects are arrayed alongside one another on a single flat metaphysical plane. It is an ontology of the surface of the steps of the plains populated by running horses, lions, marsupials, rocks, tractors, trees, and hunter-gatherers. As such, flat ontology makes three ontological claims. Being is composed entirely of objects, there is no relation of ontological primacy with respect to cultural objects or natural objects, physical objects or artificial objects, symbolic objects or material objects. And finally, third, that all objects are on equal ontological footing. Today I would like to focus on the third of these claims, as I believe it has important implications for science and technology studies, media studies, cultural theory and analysis, and social and political theory. Indeed, who has drawn great inspiration from heretical trends uh, 
in all of these fields while promising to bring greater focus and clarity to these discoveries, working as it does at the level of pure ontology. Right? So some of this won't be new to any of you, though you might not have put it in these sorts of terms. My thesis is that the cardinal sin of cultural studies has been an obsessive focus on content, on meaning, on the correlation of types to the detriment of the crucial role that non-human actors or objects play in the formation of social life or collectives. So here, following Latour, I replace the term society with that of collective, where society is composed entirely of humans and human phenomena, such as signs, language, narratives, and discourses. Collectives are sometimes composed of humans and non-humans, sometimes just non-humans, but never just humans alone. My thesis is that social and political theory is doomed to go astray if it focuses on the human and the human-related phenomena like signs and language alone. No collective involving humans can be understood without taking into account the role played by non-humans and the differences they contribute to the collective. The Charybdis and Scylla that flat ontology seeks to navigate are what Harmon uh, is referred to as operations of overmining and undermining which closely mirror the fetish for depths and heights characteristic of vertical ontologies. And as Harmon articulates it, overmining philosophies say that objects are naive because they are posited uselessly as substrata lying behind what is more directly given. This might be images of consciousness, it might be relations, or events, or bundles, or qualities. And likewise, this element uh, that is alleged to be more directly given could be narratives, discourses, power, language, or signs. What is important is that objects are dissolved in this medium uh, that is treated as being more directly given. We find an excellent example of overmining in Zizek's Plague of Fantasy. Zizek writes, quote, in, uh, in a traditional German laboratory, the hole in which the shit disappears after we flush water is way in front so that the shit is first laid out for us to sniff and inspect for traces of some illness. In the typical French laboratory, on the contrary, the hole is in the back. That is, the shit is supposed to disappear as soon as possible. Finally, the Anglo-Saxon, English or American laboratory, presents a kind of synthesis, a mediation between these two opposed poles. The basin is full of water so that the shit floats in it, visible but not to be inspected. He goes on to say, Hegel was the first, uh, was among the first to interpret the geographical triad, Germany, France, and England, as expressing three different existential attitudes. German reflective thoroughness, French revolutionary hastiness, uh, English moderate utilitarian pragmatism. <laughs> the reference to performing the experimental, uh, let's see, the reference to laboratories enables us not only to discern the same triad in the most intimate domains of performing the experimental function, but also to generate the underlying mechanism of this triad in three different attitudes towards experimental excess. Ambiguous contemplative fascination, the hasty attempt to get rid of the unpleasant excess as fast as possible, the pragmatic approach to treat the excess as an ordinary object to be disposed of in an appropriate way. So it is easy for an academic to claim at a round table that we live in a post-ideological universe. The moment he visits the restroom after the heated discussion, he is again knee-deep in ideology." End quote. All right, so what we have here is a perfect example of overmining or vertical ontology philosophizing from the heights. Situated in terms of McLuhan's tetra, Zizek's analysis displaces the toilets themselves so as to intensify the manner in which they are mere vehicles for ideology and the signifier. When I refer to an object functioning as a vehicle, I mean a treatment of the object such that it is a passive matter, contributing no important differences of its own, which merely carries a meaning or content. The thesis is not only that what we should really be interested in is uh, the ideology embodied in the toilets, but, if the, if, uh, but that if we are interested in the toilets, qua toilets, we are ideologically duped victims of a variant of false consciousness or fetishism by virtue of the fact that what is really important is the ideology embodied in toilets. In their turn, these twin claims suggest that social and political analysis is concerned with the domain of content, of meaning, 
meaning alone, and that non-human objects are only of interest insofar as they are vehicles for this content or meaning. In other words, the thesis seems to be that it is only the level of content, of meaning, that organizes and regulates human relationships and social configurations. Object-oriented ontology's thesis is not that Zizek's ideological analysis is false or mistaken, but, if the, but that if we overmine objects in such a way as to treat them as passive vehicles of significations, our social and political analyses are doomed to go astray. By contrast, where overmining philosophies argue that objects are falsely deep, undermining philosophies argue that objects are too superficial to constitute true reality. As Harmon puts it, the undermining philosophies say that objects are naive because they are not deep enough that there is something deeper than objects. In extreme cases, it might be the one. In less extreme cases, it might be some pre-individual realm, or it might be atoms, or water, or air, for that matter, end quote. Between overmining and undermining philosophies, we thus have two variants of eliminative productivism. By and large, though there are important exceptions, overmining philosophies tend towards what could be called eliminative uh, anti-realism or idealism. Uh, here, objects tend to be eliminated in favor of contents of consciousness, signs, language, discursive structures, ideologies, discourses, narratives, and so on. It is clear that overmining philosophies tend to be the favorite domain of those who side with the culture side of the nature-culture divide characteristic of the myth of modernity. On the other side, undermining philosophies are favored by those who take the nature side of this uh, culture-nature binary, leading to variants of materialism and eliminative materialism, where objects are erased in favor of, for example, subatomic particles. In both cases, objects disappear and are treated as mere effects of something else that is not itself an object. Ontology, which is what I uh, call my variant of object-oriented ontology, seeks to avoid both eliminative anti-realism and eliminative materialism by defending the autonomy and irreducibility of objects regardless of whether they are natural or cultural. So before proceeding to discuss the specific claims of flat ontology, it is first necessary to outline the features that ontology attributes to the being of objects. I cannot here give a demonstration that objects must have these qualities to be coherently thought. So I will proceed by formulating the properties of objects through a series of theses. First, it is crucial to understand that uh, objects are essentially split or are split objects. Whenever one hears the term object in the context of ontology, she should immediately think split object. This is my way of articulating Graham Harmon's thesis that objects are withdrawn. Though I arrive at this conclusion for different reasons in ways that are somewhat at odds with his own ontology. Where Harmon's objects perpetually withdraw from one another, my objects are in excess of any relation they enter into with other objects, and this by virtue of the fact that objects are defined by their potentiality or powers, by what they can do, rather than their actuality at any given point in time. There are four ways in which objects are split. First, objects are split between their status as substances, or individuals, and whatever qualities they happen to possess at any given point in time. In this respect, objects can never be reduced to their qualities or treated as the sum of their qualities. While qualities are actualizations of powers of objects, they do not exhaust objects. Thus, one and the same liter of water can be highly viscous when it is in a liquid state or extremely hard, uh, or extremely hard when it is frozen or exists under intense pressure. The viscosity and density of water is a quality water can manifest. Whereas the water qua substance or object differs from any of these qualitative states. I think uh, what Graham was referring to in his talk as a distensuous object. The water qua substance is the set of its powers or capacities. If it is of crucial importance for the social theorist to remain mindful of this difference between substance and qualities, then this is because objects might actualize very different qualities when they enter into new relations. If we weren't mindful of the distinction between the object of substance and the qualities embodied by that substance, we risk confusing the being of the object with its actualized standards. 
missing important emancipatory possibilities that would emerge were the substance set in different relations, thereby actualizing different qualities. As a consequence, ontology argues that we must remain vigilant in distinguishing between qualities and substances. For if we reduce objects to their actualized qualities, we will overlook the volcanic potential objects possess when entering into new relations. Second, objects are split between their wholeness and their parts, or their status as totalities and their being as composed of parts. Although there are no objects without parts, objects cannot be reduced to their parts. In many instances, though not without limit, the parts of an object can be destroyed or replaced without the object ceasing to be. My body, for example, perpetually loses cells and gains new cells. The being of an object is thus not its parts, but rather its internal relational structure, or what Harman calling, uh, calling Zubiri refers to as uh, its status as a system of nodes. This thesis is ripe uh, with important ontological implications of great interest, I believe, to the social theory of scientists. For the parts that make up an object are, in their turn, objects in their own right. And this entails that we can get conflicts or struggles between the objects that make up an object and the larger scale object to which these parts belong. Third, objects are split between what I call their endo-relational composition, constituting their being as a whole totality or community, and their exo-relations that they entertain to other objects. Endo-relations constitute the internal structure of an object, independent of all other objects. Exo-relations are the temporary relations an object enters into with other objects. Here, the key point is that objects are independent of their exo-relations. While objects can and do enter into relations with other objects, they are nonetheless independent of their relations insofar as they can withdraw from these relations and enter into new relations. Often, when objects enter into new exo-relations, new qualities emerge. This suggests that if we are to understand or know objects, we need to approach them in the spirit of experimentalism, varying the conditions in which they exist to determine how they behave in these shifting environments or when they enter into new exo-relations. Finally, objects are split between their virtual proper being and their local manifestations. This split or distinction mirrors the split between substance and qualities. The virtual proper being of an object is its in, uh, endo-relational structure coupled with the powers or capacities an object possesses to act and produce differences, whether in itself or in another object. By contrast, the local manifestation of an object is the qualities it actualizes on a particular occasion, uh, clothing or disguising other potentialities or powers. And uh, you know, it's important to note here with respect to manifestation that manifestation is manifestation to the world or in the world, not to a human being. Sometimes objects manifest themselves to human beings, but there could be one object in the universe that nonetheless still manifests itself. All right, so in addition to the four ways in which objects are split, <coughs> Ontopology argues, second, that all objects are autonomous and independent of one another. While objects can enter into relations with other objects, and while objects can be composed of other objects, no, uh, no object is reducible to any other object. Whenever new powers or capacities emerge that aren't found among the smaller objects that function as parts of the larger object, we have a new object. A football team could do things that football players alone cannot. For example, it's the team that wins the game, not an individual player that wins the game. In this respect, objects are like Leibniz's monads, monads, possessing an absolutely unique and singular being. As a consequence, no object is ever simply a function of the relations it enters into with other objects. While other objects do indeed play a role in what qualities an object actualizes in its local manifestations, the virtual proper being of an object is always in excess of any of these relations and irreducible to these relations. Third, because objects are split between their status as substances and their qualities or their virtual proper being and their actual local manifestation, it follows that no object can ever encounter another object and that no person can perceive an object. Whenever objects interact with one another, they interact with the qualities or local manifestations of one another. 
and never the other objects qua substance. The proper being or substantiality of objects is always in excess of any relation it enters into with other objects, such that its being is held in reserve and never fully manifested to the world. It is always capable of doing, uh, of doing other things. In this respect, objects are like ghosts or poltergeists. Just as poltergeists are never directly encountered, but only inferred through their effects, objects only encounter one another through their effects. Insofar as all objects are on equal ontological footing, it follows that what holds for the interaction of two inanimate objects holds equally for humans and animals interacting with other objects. What we perceive are not objects, but rather qualities or effects of objects under determining conditions. One of the major errors of traditional epistemology has been the search for objects and qualities, which amounts to the confusion of objects with their actuality. All right, so fourth, insofar as objects manifest themselves in their qualities, they are to be understood as difference engines or, uh, following the philosopher of science, Roy Basker, as generative mechanisms. Objects are defined by their powers or capacity to produce differences in the form of qualities. In other words, qualities are not predicates that, an ob that objects have, but rather acts on the part of objects. The prejudice that predicates or properties are something that objects simply have, rather than acts of objects, arises from dealing primarily with objects in stable environments. And, and I think uh, this is a sort of prejudice that uh, philosophers and academics are particularly guilty of uh, because we, uh, we, we sit in chairs. And so when we begin to talk about the being of objects, we privilege uh, the dimension of gaze or of vision, looking at an object in a fixed or still environment uh, in which uh, it, it's, it's predicates and properties seem to be inherent features of that object. If uh, you work with objects by contrast, so as in, uh, for example, cooking, right? you encounter the being of objects in a very different way. So often when environments are perturbed, new qualities volcanically erupt. Other qualities disappear. Thus, for example, our tendency is to think that the human body has a more or less uh, fixed spatial form. But this idea arises from dealing with the body primarily under certain pressure, pressures and gravitational conditions. The body's uh, form manifests itself in quite different ways in outer space and deep in the ocean. No doubt part of this prejudice arises from the sedentary lifestyle of philosophers and theorists who deal primarily with texts rather than rocking with objects under shifting conditions to see how they behave and act as a construction engineer might. Objects generate differences, which is why they can be fruitfully, uh, fruitfully thought as difference engines. For every quality we encounter, we must uh, thus keep in mind that it is an act on the part of an object. The color of an object, for example, is not simply a property that the object has, but is a response on the part of the object to determinate lighting conditions. Change those lighting conditions and the color changes. Uh, objects produce differences in one of two ways. Exorelationally, qualitative differences occur when one object affects another object as in the case of lighting conditions evoking a particular color in, the, in an object. Endorelationally, objects are capable of producing differences in themselves as a consequence of their own internal dynamics or impulses, as in the case of the germinating seed. Often the production of qualities takes place as a result of both endorelational and exorelational dynamisms in tandem with one another. In conceptualizing objects as difference engines or generative mechanisms, our conception of epistemology has to be revised. To know is not to list a set of properties given uh, before the gaze of the observer, but rather to discover the powers of an object or what differences it is capable of producing under determinate conditions. So we have to vary, vary those conditions to encounter the object. We arrive at a knowledge not by uh, a knowledge not by passively regarding the world about us, but by acting on objects and thereby discovering what objects do. <clears throat> Finally, fifth, objects maintain only selective relations to other objects. As Harmon likes to put it, objects are behind firewalls. Firewalls, in his words, quote, prevent all possible observed relations from being regarded as real objects, end quote. <coughs> 
And uh, no object is related to all other objects. Neutrinos fall straight through the Earth without leaving a trace or perturbing other forms of matter. And that's an attempted neutrino uh, detector up there. They, they've really been giving themselves headaches trying to uh, detect these neutrinos. And last I heard, they hadn't uh, detected it. Uh, is that correct? Nobody knows. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, in Toulouse and Guattari's justly celebrated example of the tick in a thousand plateaus, the tick is open to the world through three affects the movement towards light, the olfactory, which leads it to drop on passing mammals, and the heat, which leads it to burrow into the warmest region of the mammal in pursuit of blood. Much of the world is entirely invisible to both the tick and the neutrino. We can thus claim that objects are split in a fifth way. They are split between a relation to the world to which they belong and the environment to which they're open. Objects belong to a world populated by all other objects, but relate only selectively to other objects within that world. The world of objects to which an object is open or responsive constitutes the environment of that object. The world is always greater than any environment. So, Having briefly outlined the ontological features shared by all objects, we are now in a position to tackle the third thesis of flat ontology, or the thesis that all objects are on equal ontological footing. Here it is crucial to understand that the claim that all objects are on equal ontological footing is not equivalent to the claim that all objects are equal. As Ian Bogost uh, so nicely articulates this point, all things exist equally but all objects do not equally exist. That's David and Goliath, got David giving up there in that. Just, oh, forget it, he says. Speaking in the context of the univocity of being, or with respect to the thesis that being is said in a single and same sense for all that exists, Deleuze expresses a similar point in difference and repetition. He says, quote, the words everything is equal may therefore resound joyfully on the condition that they are set of that which is not equal in this equal univocal being. Equal being is immediately present in everything, without mediation or intermediary, even though things reside unequally within this equal being. The point of flat ontology is not to argue that all objects are equal, but to emphasize that all objects, no matter how minute or insignificant, exist equally, are irreducible to one another, and what amounts to the same thing are autonomous and independent of one another. In this respect, flat ontology can be thought as a sort of bookkeeping or accounting. What it refuses is the undermining or overmining of one sort of object by another object, such that the object is reduced to either a mere vehicle for another type of object, as in the case of Zizek's toilets, becoming reduced to the signifier, or where objects are treated as a mere effect of some other more fundamental form of being, such as quantum particles, neurons, the one, pre-individual field of being, and so on. Returning to the examples of Zizek's toilets, flat ontology would not reject his ideological analysis or the role that the signifier plays in collectives, but would demand an account of what role these toilets play, flawed toilets, and what they contribute to the collective where they play a role. Flat ontology would like to know what differences the toilets contribute over and above transporting differences of other entities, such as signifiers. However, ontology also recognizes that among objects, there are all sorts of inequalities or differences in capacity and power, such that some objects impact other objects to a much greater degree than other objects within a particular collective. Nonetheless, it is important to remember that the degree of power or impact an object has within a collective is a moving and shifting target within that collective. In other words, objects that one moment play a minor or insignificant role within a collective can shift to playing a major and over-determining role within the same collective. In Prince of Networks, Harmon gives a gorgeous example of such a shift when he speaks of a Roman emperor, emperor choking on a pebble in his suit. Initially, the pebble is a rather minor actor in a collective, yet when the emperor chokes and dies from this pebble, an entire cascade of consequences follow. Now, there are two ways in which objects are on equal footing. First, the claim that objects are on equal footing, uh, uh, ontological footing, is not the claim that all objects are of the same type or stuff, but the claim that 
heterogeneous objects exist equally. Objects do not come in one flavor or type, such as material or natural objects. Human beings are not the same as stones or cane toads. Nations are not the same as stars. Cities are not the same as people that dwell within them. Hammers are not the same as the atoms that compose them. Toilets are not the same as the ideologies that burn uh, upon swirl around them. Uh, couples are not the same as the individuals that live within them. Right? Uh, a couple would be an object over and above the two people involved in that couple. The numbers are not the same as the trees they count. Money is not the same as the relations of production they express, it expresses. Flat ontology vigorously defends this heterogeneity and the autonomy of these different types of objects. In this way, ontology rejects both the undermining gesture of producing different types of objects to some basic type of being and the overmining, uh, overmining gesture of dissolving objects in language or consciousness or sign. While, for example, it is unlikely that money can exist without subatomic, uh, subatomic particles, the proper being of money cannot be understood in terms of subatomic uh, particles. And we can make a similar point with relations of production and money. Uh, flat ontology thus enjoins us uh, both to recognize the heterogeneity of objects and to avoid the bad habit of reducing one type of object to other types of being. Instead, proposing to think in terms of entanglements of objects within collectives, or assemblages, and how heterogeneous objects of all types mutually affect and struggle with one another. Second, the claim that all objects are on equal ontological footing is equivalent to the claim that objects are equal at all scales of being. Larger scale objects cannot be reduced to smaller scale objects despite the fact that their existence is dependent on these smaller scale objects. A society, for example, is not identical to the persons or human bodies that exist within that society. In this respect, ontology vigorously rejects Margaret Thatcher's thesis that societies don't exist. If societies can't be reduced to the persons that compose them, then this is because persons come and go, either dying or being born or moving elsewhere, while the society persists. The society has an interrelational structure, power, and proper being all its own. Just as the individuals that dwell within a society have their own interrelational structure and proper being of their own. This is a strange myriology of object-oriented ontology, where wholes cannot be reduced to the parts, to parts and where wholes are independent of their parts. Were we to set up a Hegelian contradiction between Thatcher's thesis and also Zaire's position that the subject is an effective ideology, uh, it would uh, be seen that ontology sides with neither position. Ontology rejects both the Althusserian thesis that subjects are mere effects of ideological interpolation uh, by society, and the Thatcherian thesis that societies don't exist but are merely connections of individual persons. From the standpoint of ontology, Althusser is mistaken by virtue of overmining human individuals through an eliminative reduction of the person to the social order. Here, persons are overmined in favor of wholes. This overmining of objects is the root of worries in contemporary continental political theory over questions of how change is possible. Insofar as persons have been dissolved, how change is possible becomes thoroughly mysterious because we only have the power structures of society responding to one another, reproducing that very structure. Likewise, Thatcher is mistaken by virtue of undermining society in favor of persons. For Thatcher, it is persons that are real and society that is an illusion. For ontology, by contrast, societies are real objects in their own right, independent of persons that compose them. It should be noted that what ontology here claims is not ontologically unique to humans and societies. This strange relation between parts of an object and a larger scale object is true of all objects. Thus, for example, there is an important sense in which the cells that compose my body are themselves objects independent of my body. And sometimes these objects rebel against my body, right? As in the case of cancer, which is cells asserting their autonomy. Likewise, the particles that compose a rock are constantly being exchanged with the world around them while the rock remains. With respect to objects at different levels of scale, ontology thus invites the investigator to shuttle back and forth between parts and wholes as distinct objects, examining the matter in which they are entangled with one another, how larger scale objects enlist smaller scale objects, 
and how smaller scale objects struggle and enter into conflict with larger scale objects of which they are a part. Not only must the investigator examine the way in which objects at larger levels of scale interact with objects at the same level of scale, but the investigator must also examine the way in which larger scale objects are entangled with their parts or subsets and the sorts of conflicts and divergent paths that emerge between these levels. These areas of inquiry have barely been broached by contemporary social and political theory, though there, are important uh, though there are important beacons of light that have worked in this direction. So, at the beginning of this talk, I suggested that the cardinal sin of contemporary social and political theory is a focus on the role played by content in collectives to the detriment of everything else. Whether we are speaking of Adorno's focus on the culture industry, Zizek's analysis of ideology, or the analysis of the meaning of cultural artifacts in all domains of cultural studies, the implicit thesis seems to be that only the domain of the signifier of meaning of narrative and discourse is relevant to the investigation and critique of collectives. If changes to come from anywhere the thesis runs, it will come from the domain of meaning and signification. While not rejecting the importance of analyzing content, flat ontology recommends a shift in perspective where we take into account uh, non-signifying differences in collectives and role played by non-human actors. Let's take the example of the electric light as suggested by Marshall McLuhan in Understanding Media. In and of itself, the electric light is a non-signifying object within a collective that involves human beings or in which human beings are entangled. The claim that the, the light is a non-signifying object is the claim that the electric light and its contribution to a collective cannot be understood in semiotic terms. Nonetheless, the electric light does introduce important differences into the organization of collectives involving humans. Compare a collective with electric light to a collective with only candlelight and oil lamps. Now suddenly things like late night baseball games, brain surgery, midnight factory work, nightlife, and all the rest become possible where they weren't before. Latour gives a nice example of the role played by such non-human actors or objects in reassembling the social. There Latour writes, quote, between a car driver that slows down near a school because she has hit the 30 mile per hour yellow sign and a car driver that slows down because he wants to protect the suspension of his car threatened by the bump of the speed trap, is the difference big or small? Big, since the, immediate, uh, the obedience of the first has gone through morality, symbols, signposts, yellow paint, while the other has passed through the same list to which has been added a carefully designed concrete slab. And I, I think in a lot of cultural studies today, we find ourselves in this position where we've given science this kind of omnipotence, uh, which is somewhat strange. Latour is always talking about just how easy it is to make a sign of that word. This little passage contains in a nutshell, and as a recovering Lacanian, right? Uh, <laughs> this really drives uh, it home. This little passage contains in a nutshell the basic lesson of flat ontology for social and political theory. It's not enough to focus on science, content, or meaning, but rather we must carefully investigate the non-signifying differences that these non-human objects introduce into collectives uh, in which humans are entangled. In understanding media, McLuhan writes, quote, it is the medium that shapes and controls the scale and form of human association and action, end quote. This would be the perfect expression of what ontology seeks to investigate in the context of social and political thought, were it not for McLuhan's emphasis on human associations and actions. Rather, were we to rewrite McLuhan's thesis in appropriate object-oriented terms, we would say that ontology seeks to investigate how objects contribute to the scale and form of associations and actions, among other objects. These objects include objects of all sorts, ranging from signs to narratives to persons to speed bumps to airport hubs to electric lines and fiber optic cables to rocks to resources and environments, and so on. What, what uh, ontology seeks to investigate when wearing the hat of the social and political theorists are, above all, entanglements of different types of objects when they interact with one another. And above all, it wishes to understand sticky networks where objects are entangled in such a way that the freedom of movement for certain objects is limited by virtue of the current regime of relationships among these objects. For example, if overpasses are too low in the direction of the public beach, public buses are unable to transport people from the poor part of town to the beach. 
It is not an ideology here that sorts the wealthy and the poor on the beach and reproduces these social relations, but a non-human actor, the overpass, that reproduces these social relations. Ontology suspects that, uh, that many of the repetitive patterns in our collective life are of this sort. So, working on this premise, ontology envisions a cartography of interactions between collectives of human and non-human objects so as to discern those strategic points where collectives might be transformed. Yet this task requires a shift in perspective away from the strictly semiotic focus on content or meaning. All right.
is being raised by that sort of question is uh, that now we're suddenly in uh, Plato's Tangled Beard, this Meinongian universe where anything that we can conceive is an object. Uh, and I think the problem with this sort of question or this sort of issue is that it presumes that all objects are the same. And so the rhetorical effect of this kind of question is to say that if I can conceive of a unicorn, I'm bringing a unicorn into existence. Uh, and uh, that seems absurd. I can't feed that unicorn. Uh, I can't ride on that unicorn. It is merely uh, a property of my imagining. Right? Uh, but a fictional object is a different kind of object than a physical object. And so that's one of these issues here. A second issue here is that, uh, remember, over the course of uh, developing the paper, I distinguished between, on the one hand, objects and their being as substances, and on the other hand, their local manifestations or actualizations. And so we have to ask this question. Are we talking about an object when we talk about somebody conceiving a unicorn in their imagination, or are we talking about a predicate or an act on the part of an object? And uh, when, uh, when I refer to something like a unicorn, presumably, uh, qua thought, I'm referring to an act or a predicate of a particular object, namely the mind that I am. Okay, well, uh, can I just ask a follow-up? Because I was thinking about something that wasn't fictional. Um, that, that's a, actually a, a, a great answer. But um, I have a bank account. My oh, bank account yeah. has a balance. And I can think of both of those things as object-like. Uh, but uh, the balance is the result of a history of transactions. And there's a, there's a kind of long-standing debate, obviously. And this is manifested, I think, very directly in computing yeah. and how we model the world, for example. Right, no. And I, is I, a transaction an object or is it an event? I, I think what you're getting at, I mean, is, is just an excellent question, right? And one of the reasons that I think an object-oriented ontology is such a valuable sort of ontology to possess, because we just had this huge financial meltdown in the United States, and what were the objects that caused this financial meltdown? They were these fictional entities. They were these derivatives, these things that were purely, not in the sense I'm using the term, they were purely virtual. And an ontology such as this has a place for those sorts of entities. Now, you, uh, you talk about the history of interactions. For the object-oriented ontologist, or I should say the ontologist, uh, these, uh, these interactions would just be exo-relations between different kinds of objects that locally manifest what's going on in your bank account in a different particular way. So a transaction isn't an object? Uh, a transaction would be an interaction between different objects, uh, I would say. That's, that's so it's something I can refer to that's not an object? Huh? So it's something I can refer to using a noun phrase that is not an object? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, this is one of the places too where you know, I wonder, Graham, about your position because I, I'm, I'm not willing necessarily to make the leap that any relation between two objects is itself an object, but I still go back and forth on that kind of issue because uh, I want to say, yeah, I want to agree with you that when I pick up this microphone, my powers have changed, right? So I am a new object. Yeah, I think Latour is right when he talks about a person with a gun. Is a different object, or, or somebody working in a factory is a different object than somebody working on a farm. But I'm not sure if I want to go as far as you're going. I, I think. Oh, okay, so the transaction for me is an object. One other candidate for to talk about that wouldn't be an object might be something like the redness of an apple. Uh, well, yeah, which would be a local manifestation in my language. So, for example, property. I was wondering about your example of the, uh, the low highway and the buses. You said that um, that was not ideological, but it was a question of these objects and the bridge. Um, but if, you know, if I was like Ranciere, then I would simply say, well, this is ideological because those who don't need public transportation, um, I mean, sorry, those who need public transportation remain the uncounted or the invisible. And so I don't need to go through. Um, okay, you know, but, but, uh, but, but what is your question assuming? Your question is assuming that the bridge was built by people that don't need public transportation. It could have been a bridge that was built, say, you know, in the 13th century in Europe. Uh, you know, there's a great scene. What, was it in uh, was it one of, in one of the European vacation film with Chevy Chase, right? Uh, where they go down the uh, the road that uh, that is too narrow. Right, right. And so what we're talking about here is a non-signifying difference that produces differences at the level of content or signification. And so I think to always make this, you know, the point back at the finger uh, and to say the moon is, is composed of fingers, 
I think uh, you know that that's that kind of move when we reflexively always jump back to ideology. We need, uh, and, and part of the problem here is ideology, ideas, logi. It's going to lead us inevitably to constantly talk about discourse and content. Uh, it's going to invite that sort of tendency in our thought, rather than having a very very specific content, uh, concept of ideology that's highly restricted that allows us to talk about these other things that might be unanticipated and aleatory results of certain arrangements that we developed at particular points in time. I had a question about the manner in which you conceive of the relation between what you're calling objects here and the metaphysical flat surface of the world upon which those objects are laying. And I want to ask this question specifically with an eye to the way you're conceiving of equal being. What does equality in being consist of? What does that ontological claim rest upon? And how does it bear upon the relation between the two things? I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're drawing upon a metaphysical surface to introduce us to objects, can we think that surface as an object? Is that surface to be distinguished from what you're calling objects? And it's not to be distinguished. Uh, from uh, from what we would call objects, uh, and um, yeah. So when I talk about metaphysical surface, it's it's uh, not to be thought of as, as anything like Deleuze's plane of eminence or some sort of one all or some sort of container. Uh, you know, objects are always going to be primary, uh, at least for me at this point, in terms of uh, anything like time or space. And there's not going to be any sort of apparon out of which they emerge. Uh, you know, the metaphysical surface here, uh, I, I call it a metaphysical surface, just uh, so the term isn't taken too literally, uh, okay. you know, to think of you know, a flat surface like this. It's just that, the, that there's no being that is entirely outside of being, like say, uh, a transcendent god, uh, that uh, couldn't interact with, uh, where creatures couldn't interact with that being. If, if there were an object-oriented uh, theology, right, even God would have to be thought of as an actor with a particular point of view or with particular exo-relations to creatures. So, is that? Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious about your final autonomy. You mentioned this concept of entanglement in kind of the literal scientific sense. Um, the, the, the idea of it's what, you know, Einstein, obviously, and the ways in which you're defining autonomy seem to be very subtly anthropocentric, actually, in that it's what we can detect as an autonomy, like whether we find uh, it. And so, no, I mean, the metaphysical thesis that objects are autonomous has nothing to do with whether or not we can detect that autonomy. That's, that's an issue for actual experimental investigative practice. And so I can commit my thesis, myself to the thesis that objects are autonomous with, uh, with nonetheless being unable to detect all sorts of objects in the world were to directly know those sorts of objects. Um, so I, I don't see how the uh, metaphysical thesis entails any sort of uh, anthropological relation where it is uh, the subject that is individuating objects out there in the world. Well, just from the perspective of perceptual grouping and the ways in which we're understanding that autonomy. And yeah. empirically, and I like the earlier example of biology, there's all these strange things happening where things aren't nearly as autonomous as we once thought they were. And so I'm just curious from the perspective of your thesis, kind of what is the definition, what, what's the defining point of that autonomy if it's not kind of empirical relations? That's yeah, an epistemological question uh, that, uh, you know, I, I can integrate within the framework of the ontology you're proposing all the biological claims you're making about how we perceive the world as uh, and one of the points here is that when uh, objects always translate the world in a particular way, I think uh, this resonates from nicely with Stephen's talk. And so certainly there are ways in which uh, any biological actor like a frog or you know, myself uh, uh, you know, follows the sort of things that uh, Barabon Oakskill or uh, uh, you know, more recently Varela and uh, so on talk about uh, at the, uh, the epistemological level while also being able to uh, metaphysical independence of objects. So, I mean, we can have uh, a mismatch mapping here, as it were, I think, is what, what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, so I was just wondering how you were defining it from that 
kind of from the perspective I've lost, but I mean, it's like a, but, and that's what I've liked about a lot of the thought-oriented approach, but it seems like a bit of this notion sometimes in the way that it's being used, it's simply to define it from this whole archival perspective where you have all these nested objects and it's just a matter of whatever grouping we're defining, because mm -hmm. um, it's the only way we can define it, because it's us. Yeah, Barbara? I was uh, you know, for, uh, this is more of an observation because it's negative, and it actually uh, um, sort of jives with prison view and space uh, the fictional object. Um, I, this whole business, I, I was wondering what visual variology might look like, the aesthetics of what is, and it reminded me of a debate, an aesthetic, really important aesthetic debate in antiquity, uh, between Horatian and Manipian satire, where Manipian, it, it has to do with the reality of a made-up object. Uh -huh. And what object is a legitimately made-up object? That's yeah. Horatian satire. That's, uh -huh. uh, you know, social, it's realistic. Manipian satire, which was obscene, skirts, made up of bits and pieces, fragments, for which the visual correlate is the word yes. In other words, it's a mishmash. Um, uh, a mash, literally. Mash. You're making me think of uh, Klosowski's reverted novels, uh, you know, where uh, which yes. is his wife. But, but it seems to me, you see, if we go back to to Graham's uh, uh, point, I mean, in, in some ways, uh, it, what we're talking about is the object as an efficacious entity. Um, those manipulative mixed up compounds, you would say a nano. You would yeah. say, actually, uh, a nanocell is feeling manipulative. Uh, you could say synthetic biology produces in the direction uh, of a manipulative satirical object, you know, mixed uh -huh. up from God knows what. Um, that has a kind of efficacy. So I just make that as a kind of thing that around through my head, you know, kind of day listening to you, because it seems to me um, there is a kind of visual variable. Yeah, I would certainly whether you like them or not, you know. No, I'm all for the reality of fictional objects. And the literature on the grotesque, which is of course the work that I Yeah. Yeah, you alluded to our, I guess you would say, cultural knee-jerk reverence for science. So I can have an ask. Um, can, can there be an object-oriented ontologist who is also a scientist? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the position I was articulating um, is not uh, at all directed uh, against the, uh, the scientists in any way. It's uh, directed against uh, scientistic philosophers uh, who uh, you know, want to restrict uh, the, uh, the range of beings that can exist in the world to natural or physical beings or something like that. Well, I guess, would it be like wearing two hats, or would there be a pressure towards another kind of science that is practiced today? That's a good question. Yeah, uh, whether or not this would generate a different kind of science. And uh, I, I don't have an answer to that question offhand, but uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I'd like to say it would, <laughs> but I have no idea what it would look like, uh, you know, object-oriented science. I've often thought that Kuhn is already there. There's a tendency to look at Kuhn's paradigms as sociological thinking. I tend to think of them as the object that remains, despite all the fluctuations and the properties of those objects. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, thinking of um, fictional objects or virtual objects, I'm interested in what you think the, the status is, if we could create say, a simulation of this room that has all the exact parts and components in it, um, does the, the table in that virtual simulation um, have the same status as the table here? Is that itself um, the same kind of object or the same object, or is that something entirely different? Um. They would have the same powers, right? Uh, but uh, would they be the same object? Uh, I, I presume that they would manifest themselves in different ways depending on the uh, exit relations that they enter into, nonetheless, uh, and uh, and so on. So I'm, I'm inclined to say uh, they would be different objects. Um, yeah. um, I had a question. Um, I apologize for your 
the, the well, I do, I, 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 I do think, uh, yeah, maybe there should be something like experimental philosophy. You know, it, it's not by mistake that Ian here, uh, who, who also wears the hat of a computer programmer, is also attracted to this philosophy because he rocks with objects in a particular way rather than passively sitting them in front of his gaze and reading them in the text. Um, and then, so certainly I would say that, uh, you know, as a, as a matter of uh, good methodology, uh, it's, it's probably good for the, somebody who wants to be an object-oriented ontology to do something like uh, pottery or where things can go wrong, right? Or, or raise a child or, uh, you know, I mean, all these sorts of issues. Um, so uh, certainly, uh, as for the question of object-oriented uh, ethics, um, uh, a lot of us have uh, been working heavily on these sorts of issues. And uh, Jane Bennett, I think, is a good place to start, even though she's not herself an object-oriented uh, ontologist. Uh, her, her position is very close in many respects, and she's trying to think about the significance of uh, who for uh, politics and uh, ethical thought. Uh, and I, I think it's going to, in the long run, require massive revisions. Graham's already gone some of the way uh, in uh, guerrilla metaphysics and his engagement with Lingus, and I think Lingus is probably going to be a fruitful uh, direction to look. But one of the things that uh, this is going to have to change is our notion of agents and agency. Um, because uh, of, of, of the, the thesis, you know, Graham's thesis here, that you get a new object when you enter into relations with another object. And so, you know, they talk about a Kantian subject or something like that and applying the categorical imperatives, that just doesn't work when I have the microphone in my hand because, you know, I'm not equivalent to you. Uh, I'm a different kind of actor. And so we can't range over things uh, in, in this way that traditional ethics assumes that we can from a humanist perspective. Right. All right, so thank you very much for listening.